0: Today we're going to be finishing the book of Hosea chapter 4. Not the book of Hosea, but just chapter 4 of the book of Hosea. And I would encourage you to go with me there to Hosea chapter 4. And we'll start in verse 15. Hosea 4, starting in verse 15. You know, we all have, have people who influence us. Uh, and sometimes those people influence us for our good, right? They offer encouragement unto us. Uh, they, they encourage us to be better and to do better. Uh, and sometimes the influence of others upon us are, are bad. It's a bad influence. Um, and maybe it's something you know, more innocuous, like uh, they seem to always get us to cheat on our diet plan. Or maybe it's something much worse than that. But people are always influencing us, and, and who we surround ourselves with really does matter. Uh, who we follow after matters, and while this side of heaven we will never find someone who only influences us for good, because uh, we are all subject to sin, there are certainly those who consistently lead us to sin, right? that their purpose ever seems to be to influence us for wrong pur- purposes. Solomon warns in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 4 verses 14 to 17, Proverbs 4:14 4, to 17, he writes, "Do not enter the path of the wicked, and do not walk in the way of evil. Avoid it. Do not go on it. Turn away from it and pass on. For they cannot sleep unless they have done wrong. They're robbed of sleep unless they have made someone stumble." For they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. All right, Solomon kind of describes this person who, before they can rest, they have to cause trouble. You know, some people, when they want to go to sleep at night, uh, they have a cup of tea. Some people drink milk. Some people pop a melatonin. And these people sin. They create havoc and want others to sin. So stay away from the paths of the wicked, Solomon writes. Don't go their way because they cannot rest until someone else has joined them in their wickedness. And maybe you have known people like this. I know that I have known people like this. They press and harass and harangue you until you say something you shouldn't. You get angry or do something you shouldn't. And then they walk away a little gleeful. Right? They have served their purpose to get a reaction from you, and that a sinful one. Today we find a warning about the path of the wicked. And in our passage today, I want us to see that God calls his people to flee from sinful ways. God calls his people to flee from sinful ways. So let's look at our passages, read that together this morning out of the book of Hosea, chapter 4, starting in verse 15. This is the word of the Lord. Though you play the whore, O Israel, let not Judah become guilty. Enter not into Gilgal, nor go up to Beth-Avon, and swear not, as the Lord lives. Like a stubborn heifer, Israel is stubborn. Can the Lord now feed them like a lamb in a broad pasture? Ephraim is joined to idols, leave them alone. When their drink is gone, they give themselves to whoring. Their rulers dearly love shame. A wind has wrapped them in its wings, and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. Now, at the start of Hosea chapter 4, we see a renewal of God's indictment against the people. So we we open up in chapter 1, and we have the... This kind of picture of uh, Hosea's family life and how it's an object lesson for the people. And we go into some indictment in chapter 2 where God says, uh, here's my complaint with you, O Israel. In chapter 3, we have this interlude where we go back to Hosea's family life and see uh, God's purpose. Again, an object lesson for the people in the life of, uh, of Hosea. But in chapter four, we go back to this kind of controversy, right? It opens up here the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. Uh, He has a, a lawsuit that he's pressing against them. And what we see is the northern kingdom of Israel has thrown off. All of God's commands, right? They, they do nothing. They break all bonds. They, they do whatever they want. And there is such incivility and such civil strife among them uh, that it's, it's evidence that they do not know the Lord. Right? That's one of the controversies, right? At the end of verse 1, and there is no knowledge of God in the land. There's no knowledge of God in the land. And accordingly, they're swearing, lying, murdering, stealing, and committing adultery. Bloodshed follows bloodshed, right? This is a nation that has all kinds of strife in it. There may be prosperity. There may be uh, wealth, but it's a cutthroat wealth, right? Everyone is looking to get their own and there's unfaithfulness. And we saw earlier in chapter one that such incivility, the, the, the reason such exists is in no small part due to the priests. The priests are supposed to be teaching the people the ways of God, the commands of God, and they're not. There is no knowledge of God in the land because the priests aren't teaching. And all they're doing instead is enlarging themselves. Metaphorically and literally, they're fattening themselves. And accordingly, judgment is coming, like people, like priests. The people are not excused for their sinful behaviors, and neither will the priests. The priests won't be exempted from divine judgment by virtue uh, of their office. You no, know, all who sin will perish. And in today's passage, we come to an admonition, a warning to the people of Judah, the people of the southern kingdom of the, the tribes of Israel, and to Judah, to not follow. And let's see that first, An admonition. An admonition in verse 15, and, and again, admonition means warning. He's warning the people. And God opens up and says, though you play the whore, O Israel, though you commit adultery, O Israel. And again, we have this link back. This isn't just some random part that uh, Hosea has thrown in here. right? This is linking back to what we've seen. The people have been unfaithful. Uh, Israel has been unfaithful to God. The institutions of Israel have been unfaithful, and that's the political, the, the religious, and the cultural aspects of the people have been unfaithful. They've been promoting worship of false gods, and not only the institutions, but even the common people itself, right? So in, in Hosea thus far, we've seen this metaphor that the institutions are represented by mother, and the people are represented, the common person is represented as children, And both are indicted by the Lord. They've been unfaithful. They've commingled their worship with the worship of the foreign gods from foreign nations. To which God here adds, Though you commit adultery, O Israel, let not Judah become guilty. And I want to briefly comment upon this issue of Judah being brought up here. Because if you study uh, commentaries and such on this, you will see that there is a, a split as to whether or not Uh, Not an even split, but there is some digression discussion about uh, is this a later addition to Hosea's message? Someone came along later and said, well, let's make this a little more applicable to Judah. So let's throw in some references to Judah. And I'd say, no, we don't have to believe that to be to be the case. I think Hosea has in mind always the people of God, who includes the tribe of Judah, the southern kingdom of Judah. And indeed, we know uh, from what we've seen already in Hosea, that he does consider, uh, he, he refers to the one true legitimate line of kings, the Davidic line. Uh, we could look at Hosea three five for instance, which reads, Afterward the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. Right, so even there, we see this reference to David, their king. Hosea understands that the only true legitimate kingship really is the Davidic line. So is Hosea concerned about the southern kingdom of Judah? Absolutely. Absolutely he's concerned. And he would want the northern kingdom to understand that and to see that. Right, he's, the, he's the prophet to the northern kingdom, but it's not, that doesn't mean that he's unconcerned with the southern kingdom. So I just point that out there, that if you go through and you see some study notes, you read some commentaries on this and you say, well, Judah's not even, Judah's a late addition here. I don't think we have to believe that. I think we see Judah's uh, intentionally uh, put in by God uh, through the prophet Hosea. And what does God call them to do, right? He says, let not Judah become guilty. In other words, Judah Don't follow in the paths of Israel. Don't become guilty like the northern kingdom is. And how are they to avoid such guilt? Right. So what is he talking about? Uh, God adds, enter not into Gilgal, uh, in which, you know, everyone knows where Gilgal is, right? (laughs) Uh, Right. This is a city uh, in this is a town. It was near Bethel in the land, the northern kingdom. Uh, Bethel is a significant location and we'll get there. Uh but Gilgal was a place where especially Elijah and Elisha ministered. So it's a place where these great prophets, right? These significant prophets in the history of the people of Israel ministered. And so it's probably taken on this kind of spiritual Mecca. Let's all go on pilgrimage to Gilgal and see the place where Elijah did this or Elisha did that. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that fascinating? Uh, you know, it's kind of like today where we set up uh, museums to different famous people in history. Let's go see Abraham Lincoln's birthplace, because that sounds exciting. Look, he was born right there. Uh, you know, it, it, it seems well, in one way it seems trite, right? Because it's just like, what's what's significant? What's special? What? But we understand that even in our day. So there's some kind of spiritual significance to Gilgal. And there's probably a place of worship happening there. Uh, where it shouldn't have been happening, to which God adds here, right? So then he goes on and he says, nor go up to Beth-Avon. And Beth-Avon is a place, but it seems that what Hosea is doing here is actually referencing the town of Bethel. So we're going back to Bethel, uh, Gilgal and Bethel. And why Bethel, Bethel, and why Beth-Avon? Well, as we go to Bethel, why, why is Bethel significant? Let's just deal with that question first. Uh, one uh, Bible dictionary states it this way, that out of all the cities named, out of all the towns named in the Bible, Bethel is the second most often named. And you get a brownie point if you know the first most often would be Jerusalem, right? Yeah. Jerusalem. So it's Jerusalem and then Bethel. So Bethel is a, a, a hugely significant spiritual place. Uh, what do we know about Bethel? Well, it's the place where Jacob saw his ladder, right? Jacob's ladder It's not really Jacob's ladder, right? It's it's God's ladder. It's the ladder that uh, as Jacob was resting there, uh, he saw angels descending down this ladder to go to the earth and angels ascending to go back up to heaven and there it it, so it's a spiritually significant place and jacob called it it had another name at the time but jacob called it beth el house of god right so beth being house el being uh elohim the name of god right so beth el the house of god but here we We want to see Beth-Avon as kind of a pejorative renaming of Bethel. And Beth-Avon means house of wickedness or house of evil. Uh, Scholars say that Beth-Avon is is likely a reference to Bethel. We see this. And so why does Hosea call it Beth-Avon, house of evil, not house of God? Because what had happened in Bethel is that it has turned into a place of idolatrous worship. While there may have been legitimate worship there at one time, it's become a place of illegitimate worship. Uh, it's, I've, I've referenced this uh, passage a few times in our study in Hosea, uh, 1 Kings 12, and I keep referencing it because it's so significant to our understanding of what is going on in this northern kingdom of Israel. First Kings 12, verses 28 and 29, tells us why Hosea calls this place the house of wickedness. So the king, and this is uh, King Jeroboam the first, Jeroboam the son of Nebat. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, and he set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. So the king worried that the people are going to continue pilgrimaging down to to Jerusalem and, and the southern kingdom of Judah, and they would go down there and say, "Oh, wow! Actually, it's pretty nice down here. Why don't we join back in with Judah?" So the king says, rather than let that happen, let's set up some alternate sites of worship. Let's create some places of worship here. Uh, Bethel's a good place. It's spiritually significant to the history of the people of Israel. So let's put up a golden calf there and say, here's your God. Uh, Here's your God, O O Israel. Listen and see, and let's come and worship. Let's create this place of worship. But it's a foreign God, right? God is not a God of a golden calf. God is not a calf. Uh, If you remember back as the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt in the book of Exodus, right? they also said, uh, let's create a golden calf to go before us. It didn't end well for them there. And so God remarks through his prophet, this house of God has become a house of wickedness. And the warning to the people of Judah is, don't go there don't go up to it don't buy into the hype right there may be some really flashy marketing coming out of the land of israel saying come to the land of bethel see all the wonders watch the golden calf see the statues bleeding shedding tears we have a fireworks show at night right the There may have been some marketing coming out of Israel saying, come to Bethel, you'll be healed here, you'll be well here, you'll worship the gods here. You're going to have prosperity for your, your family for generations if you come worship here. And God says to his people in Judah, don't do it, don't go, don't journey. It is idolatrous worship, spiritual adultery, house of wickedness, not house of God. And there are places for us as Christians that we just need to stay away from, even though they may have flashy marketing. And even though we may hear a culture around us say, you have to go and see this. You must watch this show. It's the best show you've ever seen. But the danger is that if we go there, if we watch that, we fall into idolatrous worship. We commit spiritual adultery. Some people, here's a simple one, right? Some people are predisposed to alcoholism. You know the last place they need to go? A bar, where all they serve is alcohol. Right? Men, sexual immorality is a large problem. And our culture makes it easy to satisfy the passions of the flesh. There are sites and places that we should not go. Understand this, right? You may like going to the beach. But our culture these days uh women are expected are encouraged and like to show off every bit of their body at the beach maybe for you it means you never go to the beach again i promise you will be better for it not worse off right so i just i just say that to you there are places you shouldn't go and you need to know your heart men you need to know your heart women Where is it that you are tempted to go in sin? And God says, enter not. Do not journey to. Avoid it. There are places that allure our heart to commit spiritual adultery. And we are called, we are warned, hear the admonition, do not go. And brothers and sisters, there is much in this world we will be more than okay to miss out on. Again, others may say that, well, this is a must-watch. This is a must-visit. This is a must-this or that. But understand that what the world says doesn't matter. This culture is not our measuring stick for success, happiness, love, or any of a number of other matters. And sometimes what we fail to see in our own culture, but it's often easier to see in other cultures, is the lies that are told to us. Lies of prosperity and happiness down a path. Because Satan is busy at work pressing our nation to this end. And God allows it. Romans 1, 28 to 32. Romans 1, 28 to 32. Hear this. Hear this, understand that this is what is at work in our own culture. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. That last line is a little harrowing, right? They, they know brothers and sisters I would say our culture knows understands it's on a path of destruction but it doesn't care and instead what they do is they applaud and approve those who do the same things as them they are not completely ignorant of what is right and wrong it's just that they don't care And we all want to be applauded by our peers, and so we do what they do. And thus, we have a culture given over to sin. And you may disagree with my summation, but I don't see much to give me hope in this culture at this time. Save a great work of God. God can do it. God alone has to do it. But what I see instead is a culture that is debased, that is chasing after Folly. Foolishness. There is much folly uh, that we need to flee from. But there's also much need for you, Christian, not to take part in our culture, but to influence it for the kingdom of God. And So I'm not saying we give up. I'm not saying we hide away. I'm not saying we flee to the mountains and become uh, a monk or a nun. We need to heed Paul's encouragement to the church in Corinth. 1 Corinthians 5, 9-13. 1 Corinthians 5, 13 Paul writes, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality, or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. I would say their church, this is this is the importance of church discipline. Here's why. I talk about it because we don't often do it in in church, in modern American church today. But here's why it is so important. This is what Paul says, right? This is what the scripture said. This is what God has to say to us. We cannot be okay with sin among us. Are we sinners? Yes. Will we sin? Yes. But unrepentant sin shouldn't be heard of in the church, and it is far too common. And the problem is, we don't stand in, in counteraction to our culture. We just become a part of it. The church isn't the church. The church is another club. That's not how it should be, brothers and sisters. We must absolutely attend to matters of sin within the church. But outside of the church, where people act in such ways as to show their evil intent, we speak with the grace of God. We speak about the grace of God that calls out of darkness, out of sin, and into his marvelous light. Brothers and sisters, we have a commission from Christ to go unto this world that is dead in its sins and trespasses, that is lost in darkness, and to give it the message of reconciliation, to preach of Christ Jesus, Christ and him crucified. That is how we're going to change this culture. It's not by forming a well-armed militia and taking over the power of government. It's by preaching, proclaiming, and living out the gospel. So do that, brothers and sisters. Flee. Flee those places you know you will fall into temptation. Flee those areas that you know you cannot be pressed in. Enter not into Gilgal. Don't go up to Beth avon And that's what Judah is warned, right? That's what Judah is admonished. Don't go to these places of false worship. Don't take part in it. And additionally they're told here not to swear. Swear not as the Lord lives. Now this is a this so this is like an oath form, right? And we do see legitimate uses of this in the scripture. Uh, we have Boaz says it, Boaz uses it, uh, King David uses it, Solomon uses it. And there's others in the Bible that uses it in a positive sense. It's not seem to be a bad thing. Here the sense seems to be better to not use the misuse. Uh, we don't know the exact context, but it is probably something that this is an oath that is just abused. It's an oath where as the Lord lives and maybe they're inserting the name of false gods there. And that's the intent of their heart is as, as Baal lives. Or maybe they're going to these places of false worship and they're using it in their rites of worship. As the Lord lives, I'm going to have a prosperous life. Right? They're abusing the intention of it. And so don't use it. They're using it in God dishonoring ways. Oath swearing is not prohibited per se, but Jesus certainly warns us greatly against it. Go to Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 37. Matthew five thirty three through 37. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all. Either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Right? So uh, I, I believe we've talked about this before. But why do we tend to make oaths? Because we can't be believed. Right? Because we are so dishonest in our speech on a normal pattern, right? That, that people don't believe us when we say what is true. And so we have to, right? Give an oath. We have to swear. I swear to you on my mama's grave that this is true or that is not true. Right? Why do we do that? Because we're dishonest. And I think what Jesus says is the point here, right? Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Jesus tells us just to be honest. And brothers and sisters of Christ, this is how you are to be. You are to be known by honesty. You shouldn't have to swear in order to get people to believe you. What you promise you will do, what you say is true. So see this. So hear this admonition to the people of Judah. Avoid these places of sin. right? Avoid these places of false worship. Avoid these phrases of misuse. And here we have a link with uh, in this verse with another semi-contemporary of Hosea, Amos, uh, not of the cookie variety, right? Famous Amos, uh, the minor prophet Amos, Amos five verses four and five, Amos five, four and five. And, and again, this is probably uh, this is another reason why we believe Beth-Avon is supposed to be Bethel, Uh In reference to that. Uh, For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel, and do not enter into Gilgal, or cross over to Beersheba. For Gilgal shall surely go into exile, and Bethel shall come to nothing. Right, similar message here. Similar issues at work, Uh, but instead of the prohibition against swearing, we have a prohibition of going to Beersheba, uh, which is interestingly the well, of the oath, so maybe there is a stronger connection here, right? We have a direct mention in Bethel instead of a transformation to the uh, to the house of wickedness or Beth Aven, but the message is clear, right The message is clear: Flee these places of idolatrous worship, flee from these paths of of the unfaithful people of the north. They are to avoid them. Judah is to avoid them, and so let's see that next. Avoid in verses 16 and 17. Avoid. And it's open up. And here's what we know to start out with you really don't want to be called a stubborn heifer. Right? It's not a good thing. Especially when God calls you a stubborn heifer, it's really not a good thing. All right? So opening up, it says, like a stubborn heifer, Israel is stubborn, he's rebellious. God calls out the northern kingdom of Israel because they are incorrigible, unable and unwilling to change their ways. Right? That, like a stubborn heifer, you tell it to go to the left and it goes to the right. You tell it to go straight and it goes backwards. Right? It does everything uh everything anti what you tell it. It's rebellious. They care not for what their master tells them to do or to go. They don't care. They're not listening. They're a stubborn heifer. They are rebellious. And we have a callback here to what God promised He would do to the people earlier in Hosea, in Hosea 2 6. Hosea 2 6, therefore I will hedge up her way with thorns. And the idea, probably there back in Hosea 2, is that this is a thorny hedgerow. Uh, Like today, we use barbed wire fences. Uh, In that day, obviously, they didn't have barbed wire, so they had their next best thing. You plant a bunch of bushes with thorns on it, and maybe that stubborn heifer will keep away from the other neighbor's yard, from walking out in the roadway, right? But God says there, I'll hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. This stubborn creature is going to be forced in. It will be forced to walk the path God calls it to. And translations are split on the latter part of this verse. Can the Lord now feed them like a lamb in a broad pasture? The ESV poses it as a question. Some translation poses it as a statement. And it's, it's this idea is uh, God is going to do this to the people. God is going to do this to the people. And notice the imagery shifts here. And I think this is uh, an interesting shift. They go from being called a heifer, a cow, right? Something that has power. Something that has strength. And what are they next called? A lamb. And you know what you could do with a lamb if it's getting out of control? Whatever you want, right? You can pick it up carry it over your shoulders, break its legs. You can do a lot of things with a lamb that is stubborn, and it will, it will have to listen to you because it doesn't have the power to overpower you. And so I think that's what's happening to the people, right? They go from being a stubborn cow to a lamb in a broad pasture. They go from power to impotence. And to which God adds in verse 17, Ephraim is joined to idols, leave him alone. And we have a switch here to identify the people with just so far. We've we've seen Israel. We've seen some metaphors for the people of Israel. And now we have this name Ephraim. So what's that about? Ephraim was one of the tribes of the people of Israel. It's named after one of Joseph's sons. Uh, he had two first sons, which Jacob claimed as his own. He said, uh, I thought you were dead, Joseph. So I'm going to claim two of your sons as mine own to make up for it. Manasseh and Ephraim. And near the end of Jacob's life, he blesses his children. And he blesses the children of Joseph, uh, Ephraim and Manasseh. Ephraim was the younger. Manasseh was the older. And as he goes to bless them, in a nod to his own life, that the younger is blessed over the older, Jacob gives the greater blessing to Ephraim and the lesser to Manasseh. It actually irks Joseph a little bit, so much so that he's like, Dad, you got your hands on the wrong child. Don't you know Manasseh's the older? He's supposed to get the better blessing and Ephraim's the younger. He's supposed to get the lesser blessing. To which Jacob responds, Genesis forty-eight nineteen, Genesis 48, verse 19, But his father, that is Jacob, refused and said, I know, my son, I know. This isn't a senior moment. This isn't me being senile, demented, and all the rest. I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. We jump back to Hosea's day. And what seems to be the case here is that Ephraim, one of the tribes of Israel, is greater. The blessing of Ephraim has come to fruition such that Ephraim, a part, stands in for the whole of Israel, of the the northern tribes. So Ephraim begins to represent the whole of the people of Israel. So we come to the prophets and we see these mentions of Ephraim. And it's not as though we're singling out just this one tribe. But they're standing in for the whole. The people of Ephraim have become so great that to say Ephraim is to mean Israel. To understand Israel is to understand Ephraim. And this is, by the way, the first of 36 times Hosea will reference Ephraim. So this is just the beginning where we're going to see this reference over and over again. And the scripture reads, Ephraim is joined to idols. And in this, there's maybe an implication of joining to foreign nations, making alliances with foreign nations. It is a problem in the northern kingdom, and we'll come to see that as we go through the scriptures. But, but it seems to be that, or, or we can really just understand it as the more general They have begun idolatrous worship. They're worshiping false gods. And we have added to this refrain, leave them alone. Uh, And maybe it's kind of like this, too. The the picture might be something like this. The northern kingdom is in a sleepwalk. Right. And, you know, the common advice is if you see someone in a sleepwalk, leave them alone. Don't interrupt them because it'll be worse for them. I don't think that's actually the true medical advice that you get, but that that's the common understanding. Right. And so I think maybe that's the, the picture here. Right. Israel is in a trance. Just leave them alone. Avoid them. Stand back from them. They're they're on a path of destruction. Best to step away. Or maybe like this: When God strikes them dead with the lightning bolt from on high, you don't want to be in the blast zone, right? Avoid them. And they are people who ought be ashamed. And let's see that thirdly in verses eighteen and nineteen. Ashamed. In verse eighteen is a difficult verse to translate. The first part of the verse is, is easier. The sense is made clear, I think, in the ESV. When their drink is gone, they give themselves to whoring. The people love their wine, and when it runs out, they turn to prostitution. And the point is that this is a depraved people. Uh, Everything they do is laced with immorality. They roam from party to party, they move from drink to sex, and as soon as one shameful act is finished, they run off to the next. And again, I think we see something of our own culture in this, because how quick we are to run from depravity depravity to debauchery. We are a land that is unbound from morality. We are not moving towards godlier morality. Uh, On the contrary, we're ready to throw off the oppressive commands of God, right? That's oppression. What you're telling me the Bible says is oppression. I don't want that. I want to hear that. And in fact, if you tell me the words of God, you are an oppressor. And so you're the one that needs to be castigated. You're the one that needs to be corrected. Not me. You're the oppressor. I'm the victim. I deserve comfort in what I want. You deserve to be corrected. Uh, It it may be a little little far-fetched in our country, but understand that this happens in other countries. Oh, you believe in the Bible, let us send you off to a special camp where we can correct that thinking. That happens. Hasn't happened here yet. But don't think that the pressures of our culture aren't moving us to that end. Uh, Instead, the morality of our land is, right, follow your feelings wherever they may take you. Follow them. Embrace them. So much so, right, so much so that we change our language to accommodate our desires. We don't call prostitutes prostitutes anymore. They're sex workers. Right, let's give them the dignity they deserve by saying that they're workers, not prostitutes. Prosti- a prostitute—that's a demeaning word. So let's just call them a sex worker. That gives them dignity. And understand that we may say, "Oh, that's that's just silliness, that's, that's stupidness." But understand that those who argue for such language understand the importance of it. They understand that if you can if you can get it in your mind, that's not a prostitute. That's a sex worker. Worker is positive. That you'll you'll look at those people. In a positive light, you'll look at that that immorality in a positive way, right? consider even the argument in abortion right that's not a life, that's a fetus. If I can get you to think that what's in that woman's uh womb is not life but just a clump of cells, well, who cares about killing a clump of cells? Right, we do that all the time. We go to the dermatologist, get a mole removed. You know, right, we don't have protests saying, you've killed a clump of cells. But if it's life, well, that's a different story. So don't think that language is unimportant. Language is essential. And what we see in our culture is this shift, right? This shift from let's take a, a word that's very negative. Let's rebrand it to something positive. Let's give it a positive connotation. And then the culture moves that way. So, well, that's not so bad, right? That's a, workers are positive. That's a positive thing. Let's do that. Oh, it's a positive thing to get rid of a clump of cells you don't want. That's a positive thing. Let's do that. Understand that that's what happens. We should understand that language matters. In every corner of our culture, we find these tendrils of sin. We find places where evil is called good and good is called evil. To which God says in the book of Isaiah chapter 5, verses 20 to 24, Isaiah 5, 20 to 24. Woe woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble and as dry grass sinks down in the flame. So their root will be as rottenness and their blossom go up like dust for they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and have despised the word of the Holy one of Israel. God calls woe down on his people for wantonness. And I say to you that woe is coming upon this land. If God did not spare The people who were called by his name, what makes you think that God will have any hesitation to destroy this nation, this land, this people? The Holy One has spoken and all who fail to heed his word will perish. Friend, there is destruction promised for you if you fail to heed his word. Do not mistake this reality. Do not listen to the siren call of our culture, which says, peace, peace. God is not at peace with this world. His holy character finds what is celebrated here in our society abhorrent. The people of Israel thought they could run from debauchery to debauchery, but God removed his blessings and brought upon them his curses. The curses of this book, the book of Hosea. Though they thought they had it all, what they were grasping onto was smoke, vanity. When their drink is gone, they give themselves to adultery. Now, this last part of this verse, "their rulers dearly love shame, this is the difficult part to translate. That word where we see often in our English translation, rulers, is actually the Hebrew root for shields. And so what our translators have done is is understood this to be that Hosea is referencing the rulers, uh, the, the ones who are in charge. Our translations tend to take this view, right? Psalm 89 uses this, for instance, right? It uses shield as a metaphor for kings. So it's not outside the bounds of Scripture to see this as a possibility. So we could understand, right, that this to be something like their, their rulers dearly love shame. Their, their rulers run after their debauchery, and, and we might say they have no shame. But if we take this word, literally that it is shields they they dearly love their shields what we have is an indictment against the whole of the people of Israel and we have to deal with what is this word shields and and one commentator suggests that maybe these shields are cultic shields so they're they're shields used in cult worship shields that maybe have some iconography on them some kind of uh, indication of these false gods and so we take it something like then That instead of being ashamed of their false worship, they love it. And that matches with what we know about the people of the northern kingdom of Israel. They love their false worship. They're not ashamed of it. They celebrate it. They they enjoy it. They have festivals for it. Uh, Right. We see that earlier on when we see the talk about new moons and Sabbaths. Right. They have all the festivals and they celebrate false worship. Either way, we're not given a positive picture of what these people engaged in. And accordingly, we get verse 19. God promises that a wind has wrapped them in its wings. The whirlwind has them bound. And this whirlwind is likely this reference of divine judgment. God visits in judgment in the whirlwind. We see that in small, small portion uh, when we get to Job, right? How does God show up in Job, in the whirlwind? And is it a positive thing for Job? Ultimately, yes. But in the moment, right, he's like, woe is me. I was, I was foolish. I spoke without knowing. Forgive me. Like God showed up in judgment against Job. It was a minor infraction, though, compared to what the people of Israel are now engaging in. A wind has wrapped them in its wings. Uh, we could also understand this to be something of a drought has come upon them. Famine is coming upon them, right? Just, all this to say, this is not a positive picture. This is not something good that is happening to the people. This is something that is for their, uh, for their bad, for their uh, unhealth, not their health. And they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices, right? That's the end of verse 19 there. And they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices, Those things that they celebrated in, all those moments of their happy rejoicing in idolatrous worship will turn to shame for them. So why should Judah avoid the northern kingdom of Israel? Because the shame of Ephraim will be a byword. Well, don't be like them. Ooh, did you see them? I don't know what they did to make their God angry, but boy, he was angry. Look at what he did to them. Let me just hear your comment again that so much of what is celebrated, trumpeted, and glorified in our culture is shameful. And there's coming a day when all will understand that and be ashamed. But by then it will be too late. God calls his people to flee from sinful ways because there is judgment coming for all who fail to heed such a warning. For all who fail to walk in holiness before God, they will find judgment. And now it may be for you, friend, that you look at others, uh, right? You, you look at your coworkers, you look at your family members, you look at your friends, perhaps you even look at the people who go to church around you. And you don't really find anything that different. They watch the same things that you do. They listen to the same music that you do. They read the same things that you do. Everything seems to be the same. They talk like you. They dress like you. They, they do everything the same. There's no difference between what's inside the church and what's outside the church. So what does not matter? How common sin is. But understand that what is common, God finds abhorrent. And even though our movies and te- television shows celebrated. God finds it abhorrent. And you may think that everyone else is in the midst of doing wrong, so it must not be that big of a deal. You may even countenance yourself to be better than most. However, hear the warning implicit in this passage. The holy God, our creator, does not take sin lightly. All who sin and even if they follow in a large group of others who are doing the same sin will perish judgment is coming on all sin and all who sin jesus says in matthew 7:13 and 14 matthew 7:13 and 14 enter by the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many for the gate is narrow and the way is hard and that leads to life and those who find it are few. Friend, what path is your life on? What are you walking after? Are you hoping just to be like everyone else? Do you see the the wide, broad road before you and say, well, everyone else is going this way. I guess I should go too. Do you think that what God wants for you is commonness? Now, as Jesus says, he calls you to the hard path. He calls you to the narrow gate. He calls you to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him. There is only one way of salvation, and that is by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, It is by believing and trusting in the work of Christ that you can be saved. Jesus, the only begotten son of God, came to this place and lived a holy, perfect life. He willingly laid down his life and suffering on the cross to bear God's wrath for sin, not his own. He died on the cross. He buried was buried in the grave according to the scriptures. And on the third day, he rose from that grave. He defeated death and sin, and he brought hope of eternal life for all who believe in him. And it is by grace that you can be saved. It is a free gift. It's not something you do. It's something given to you. And he calls you to repent. He calls you to turn from your sin. He calls you to turn towards him, head down that narrow road. He calls you to walk in holiness before him. Walk not like this world around us walks. And you will find at the end of that narrow path, life, eternal life, the glories of heaven, life without measure. But the path the many are walking is broad. It leads to destruction. The Israelites were headed down that commonly tread path. And church, this book of Hosea is a warning to us. This book warns us of the results of walking in the ways of the wicked. Hosea calls the people of God to flee from sinful paths, sinful ways, and to return to what we discussed at the beginning. People are influencing you. So who is it that is influencing you? Who are you listening to? Who, who do you allow to speak into your life? And understand That those people who are most influencing you may not even be the people around you. Uh, For instance, we want our children to go to church. and, And we hope that in going to church that they will be influenced for the right. But understand that the time we have together here is very limited. And they spend the rest of the time being influenced by others. We get a couple hours a week. The church, you know, most churches, even if you say a Sunday school, um, a morning service, an evening service, and a Wednesday night service, say that's four hours in a week. Out of all the many hours in the week, that's a, a minuscule amount. And you expect the church to bear influence upon them in greater number in four hours than the rest of the world does in 40, 80, 160 hours, right? The time we spend together is limited. So what does your child hear and watch the rest of the week? Adults, children, teenagers. Who do you listen to on social media? Who do you follow? What uh, YouTube channels are you subscribed to? Which uh, influencers, right? We, we Marketers understand this, right? Companies understand this. They have this whole subsection called influencers. Because they know that if we follow someone on on social media and we see them using a product, see them talking about a service, we are more likely ourselves to buy that product and use that service. They know, companies know, that they don't have to spend $15 million to have a Super Bowl ad when they could give some kid who runs some TikTok channel $500 and get a better output, a better return on investment in the Super Bowl commercial. Do you understand that? Social media influences you. So who are you being influenced by? And to what end is it? Are you watching things that are leading you in holiness or wickedness? Really evaluate that. Really think about that. Flee from sinful past, beloved. Don't linger there. Proverbs 1.10, my son, if sinners entice you, Do not consent. We are called over and over again in the scriptures to flee from sin. And however, consider not only church who is influencing you, but who are you influencing and how are you influencing them? Are you building people up in grace? Are you strengthening them in the faith? Are you encouraging them or are you discouraging them? Are you leading them in grace or are you leading them to sin? Matthew eighteen seven, Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. God has created us for better things. He has given us spiritual gifts that we may edify the church. He has given us life to give life. And in this, we all probably have reason to repent. May God forgive us for leading any towards sinful paths. And how greatly we need that work of Christ Jesus. How greatly we need, church, the forgiveness only offered to us in Christ. Not merely so we can be free of guilt and go and sin again, but so we may truly uh, press towards that calling of God, that the love of Christ may be in us, and we may love as he loved. We may speak as he spoke. We may live as he lived. How that work of our Savior is our joy. That that, that that would be the reality in us. And so may we then heed this warning of Hosea. To stay away from sinful paths. And let us not lead others to paths of death, but paths of life. And then may we ever hold to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Walking in the Spirit to the glory of God. Let us pray. O great Father in heaven, forgive us of our sins. Father, forgive us for failing to live and to walk as we ought. God, forgive us for enticing others to sin. Forgive us, Lord, for influencing others in ways that are evil. Lord, we pray that you would establish us in your truth, God, that you would lead us in truth. Father, that we would seek you in truth. Father, give us your spirit that we would put to death the deeds of the body. That we would not walk in wicked ways. Father, that when we are tempted to seek the easy path, we would remember our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And trot on that hard path towards life. God, we pray uh, for those who don't know you. Lord, we pray for those uh, close to us. Lord, those in our own uh, friend circles and, and family. Lord, we pray that they would hear and understand this word. Father, we pray that they would know of the love of Jesus Christ, Father, have mercy upon them, and give them the spirit to to be born again into new life. Father, that they may not die in their sins, be cast forever into hell, be lost. Father, we pray for this community around us. Uh, Lord, this community that has given over in so many ways to their sin. Father, we pray that they would hear the message of Christ and repent. We ask, Lord, that you would silence the mouth, that silence the mouths of false teachers and preachers. Father, silence the wolves who seek to destroy your people. Build up your true church. Father, give boldness, boldness to the spirits of those uh, who seek to follow after you. Father, strengthen uh, your under shepherds, your pastors that you have called to this place to that end. Give them strength of spirit and keep them from the evil one. Father, be glorified in us. God, be glorified in your church. Help us, O Lord, we pray. By the mercies and grace of Christ Jesus. And in his name alone, we pray. Amen.